Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I'm currently at Superstars Writing Conference in Colorado Springs, and I'm having a great time. Um, the guest that I've got today is, um, it's interesting how that came a bit, I was just written to from the office uh, a little bit ago saying, if you see him, uh, find, you know, um, Kevin Eikenberry and see if you can get him on your podcast. I said, I just finished reading his book and I'm, I'm interviewing him in about an hour. And I said, oh, that's awesome. That was great. That was Julie Wills that, that nice. said I should reach, nice. reach for you. So um, Kevin is the international best-selling author of the Protocol War series featuring Colorado Book Award finalist Sleeper Protocol, which publishes a weekly called An Emotionally Powerful Debut and the sequel Vendetta Protocol. Kevin is also the author of nine best-selling Peacemaker novels in the Four Horsemen universe. And just yesterday, I interviewed Mark Stallings, who I interviewed um, talking about the Four Horsemen universe. So again, the, the world's shrinking a little bit here. And as well as he wrote the military science fiction novel, Runs in the Family, and the thriller Super Saint. Kevin has also contributed to the Nebula Award-nominated Kane Riordan series by Charles E. Gannon, who is also a guest on the podcast, and he's going to be sending his next book that we're going to interview him on prior to that release, and his alternate history novel, The Crossing, that he wrote in Eric Flint's universe, who was a first-place winner several years ago, became a judge, and he recently passed. But this whole thing came to be, you know, I was like, wow, how small is this world? And then I read in his bio that he's a retired Army and managed U.S. space camp, which was the precursor to the current Space Force. And both my wife and I are honorary commanders in the U.S. Space Force, so it was even more shrank down. So right now in the palm of my hand, I've got a brand new friend that has all <laughs> these different connections. That's amazing. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much, Sean. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So before we get into talking about Sleeper Protocol and um, an amazing premise, you know, obviously deserving of awards. So you're in military and you're now a best-selling author and um, you uh, work in publishing. How'd this whole get started? How did this all get started with you? Well, I will tell you, I'm not one of those people that said at the age of six or seven, they wanted to be a writer. Okay, good. I, I never wanted to ha have a typewriter like Kevin J. Anderson or anything yep. along those lines. <clears throat> but I was told in high school and then again in college that I was a good writer. And while I was in college, I pursued an English minor because I was going to go to law school. That was what I thought my, my dream job was going to be. So I did take creative writing and those types of things in college, but I did zero with that, right. uh, except for write my master's thesis a couple years later. Um, Fast forward to my years at Space Camp, of course, which is the, the program for kids to learn how to be astronauts, essentially, in Huntsville, Alabama. While I was there, I was part of the Aviation Challenge portion, which is teaching kids how to be high-performance jet fighter pilots. And as part of our camp curriculum, I taught the high school-age kids, and they always wanted to fly in the simulators against the counselors, do like the Top Gun thing. Sure. And so we decided that we would take things up a little notch, and so we created fictional characters and this fictional fighter squadron, and, and then it ended up where we actually wrote some little vignettes like intelligence dossiers about these pilots that these kids were going to fly against. And then in the course of end of the ending of that summer in 1996 to the spring of 97, there were several different folks that wrote little stories using these characters. The whole idea was that it would be something that the kids could, could enjoy. And uh, none of those will ever see the light of day because I, <laughs> I, think, I think mine are terrible. But that was the first time I ever tried to do anything that was writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, fast forward a few years from that, I was an army reservist uh, for my entire career. Um, I was, <clears throat> I think I was a captain at the time and we were forward deployed just down to Fort Bliss, Texas to help uh, get people out the door for Operation Enduring Freedom. And I actually went back and I looked at some of those stories and I thought, well, I could kluge these together and make a novel. And I did. And it will also never see the light of day because <laughs> I think it's equally terrible. Um, and so at that point though, this was, uh, 2001, 2000, yeah, around, around 2002. And, uh, I just decided that was, that was the end of the writing bug. Or so I thought. 
Um, so a few years later, I was I worked with the Challenger Learning Center, so that the astronauts' families from the Challenger accident in 1986 created learning centers all across. And June Scobie Rogers, by the way, is a great friend. She, she was is a great friend of mine. She was so. a keynote speaker <laughs> at our event several years ago. So amazing! It yes. just shrunk even more now. So yeah, June, June and her family are, are, are very close friends. And uh, so I was working with the Challenger Learning Centers. I had one in Arizona, and then I actually had I'd been released from active duty to go set up one in Kansas. And while I was at, in uh, in Kansas, I had the opportunity to come down here and get involved with space operations. So that was kind of the, the tune from my military career towards space. And then the whole writing thing started to come along towards science fiction in a couple years later. So I was called back to active duty uh, in 2009, or about 2008. In 2008, I was called back to active duty because I had this background in space and space science education, and the Army was standing up space operations in the Army Reserve. And they asked me if I wanted to do that. And I said, yeah, that sounded like a lot of fun. So I went back on active duty to do so. But my first job was actually not a space job. Uh, until they could actually create the job positions here in Colorado Springs, I had to go do something else for a little bit of time. So I ended up teaching uh, ROTC. So I was teaching Army Reserve Officers Training Corps at Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana. It's one, a small private engineering school. We were also tied to Indiana State University and seven other uh, different universities in Indiana. Uh, but a very, very prestigious university. They, right. were, they were one of the last ones in the country to actually uh, get rid of the requirement for freshmen and sophomores to attend ROTC classes. They were a feeder for the Corps of Engineers for many years. But I'm there. I've been there about a year. And uh, about 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon, I have a character start talking to me. <laughs> and I, I just I, I have this idea, and I started writing notes. I've got, I always had a little notebook, so I started writing some notes. And about two pages into the notebook, I thought, this is a book. How do I write a book? And so being on a college campus, you know, I, I talked to my commander and I said, I want to take a college class. And he's, yeah, go for it. So I went back and took a creative writing class and I turned in the, I turned in the first assignment. It comes back with two words on it. See me. That's either really good or really bad. So in this particular case that the, the instructor said, why aren't you published? And I had no clue. And so as part of my, uh, early training, if you will, as a writer, and, and while I was auditing this course, I had to write three short stories. And then I had to submit those to different markets and earn my rejection merit badge, as she called it. Right. And if I still thought that I wanted to do that after writing three stories and being rejected, then I might actually have something going and being a writer. And it turned out that I did. So uh, I started writing short stories, and I think it was probably in maybe 2010 or 2011 was the first time I heard of the Writers of the Futures Contest. And I didn't do anything with that knowledge either. I didn't think <laughs> I was ready for yeah. it. And then I waited a couple of years and, and started to submit some stories. And uh, I had a couple of honorable mentions before I did what's called proing out and sold my first novel. So what an amazing story. That's super way cool. And even like I said, that, that, that palm of my hand got now, it's, now it's a walnut size. It is. It, that it, world. It, it, it's a small world. You know, it really is. Yeah, that's amazing. So, on um, we'll bounce. I mean, I've got now. I'm just so many different questions, but a little bit now on sleeper protocol because that's one thing I wanted. It's obviously won awards, but there's a reason for it's winning awards, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. How do you come up? I guess first of all, give me your elevator, elevator pitch on it so people know what we're talking about before I start asking questions into it. So Sleeper Protocol is a story of a soldier from our time who wakes up 300 years from now, but he has no identity. And he's given one year, essentially, to wander the world and figure out who he is. But at the same time, he also has to figure out if that future world is worth saving. Absolutely. And it's interesting how in the future, he's got the, I mean, at the beginning for the however long in the book, he doesn't know his name pronounce it Kieran? Kieran, yes. Yeah. So you got Kieran as he as he re, you know gets his memory and his experiences back together again and when he holds it Australian and he's he saves that or he doesn't say that he rescues the one person but he still dies and that yeah. triggers all these other memories that yes. keeps on going. And then Bennett, I guess she's the one that created the technology. She's part of that of that group, yes. Yeah. And going along fine till she decides to fall in love yep. and uh but that had to happen that was inevitable you yeah know? more or uh, less but it's funny the ai that's in his in his head having issues not understanding well what's wrong with me you know with with <laughs> with her yeah what's wrong with me you know <laughs> uh i don't have arms but i still care yeah you know so that's funny that that an interesting love triangle 
concept type. It really thing. was, and it wasn't that I, the, the original of. Uh, manuscript that I put together did not have any of that with it, but it was also something where, you know, I had, a, we've got a really, really strong group of local writers here in the Colorado Springs area. And I have a couple of friends that we sat down and we were trading story ideas and whatnot, and I just couldn't make this work. And then if I figured out that I had the wrong antagonist. And so by making the AI essentially an antagonist, the book blew up from about a 40,000 word, you know, short novel to the 95,000 word novel that it was. And, you know, of course it, then it sold and did all those other things. So yeah, it's, it, it's a question of getting the right story elements together at the right time and making those right decisions. Yeah, that was that was brilliant on that. So was there something that happened in real life? Obviously, you're not saying going 300 years in the future, but something that sparked it from your military or something that that... Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of the military. There's a lot of me in that book. Yeah. Uh, for example, in the early chapters, when Kieran recognizes that he's in Australia and he has a memory of being there on a tour with a couple of uh, British girls, I actually did that. Um, <laughs> I was I was in Australia in 1987 for the World Boy Scout Jamboree, so I was a Boy Scout at the time and went down there and spent about almost a month in Australia, and New Zealand, and that was a, a memory. So it was something that I, when I, I knew I wanted to do something with the the setting and whatnot. Uh, I feel like I left a part of my heart in Australia. I'd love to go back at some point. And by doing so, by starting it there, I was able to, to tap into those memories because I've been to Mrs. McQuarrie's chair. I've been there on Circular Quay. I've been through the Royal Botanical Gardens and, and that sort of thing. So it was fun to be able to start pulling that in. And then as you go through the rest of the book, there's there's a lot of different things, uh, the different memory sequences that Kieran has and whatnot. That's a lot of my stuff. And it was fun to, to be able to put that in because you do that for a couple of reasons. You want to add depth to a scene. But and you want to add some emotional resonance. But for me, it was also part of the story. You know, if you ha- if you have someone that's that wakes up in the future like that and has essentially all their memories, but they're blocked and they have to experience different things to pull them out, how would that look? You know, I think mm-hmm. I, I use a term or a phrase in the book that's kind of like uh, scraps of, of paper and leaves, like fallen leaves blowing in the wind for him because he'll see something and he can try to reach out and grab onto it. But until it really connects with his memory, it, it doesn't really make a, make resonance with him. And by being able to do that and tie in some of those stories, I've really felt like it was something that I could I could get that emotional response out of. And it's something that continues now into all my writing. I mean, I'm 22 books deep into this career now, and it's fun to be able to, to have those moments and bring those things through because our experiences as writers should be something that comes through in our work. Sure. And when I read books, because I'm reading a lot these days, <laughs> um, the uh, there's always something in the books. I say, okay, so let's see if I can figure out more about this, this author, you know, <laughs> with their mindset, their mentality, with their integrity level or their, their sense of uh, fitness of things, you sure. know, because it, it definitely comes true, comes through. And because um, I was just curious about that, like, again, that one sequence when he, when he tries to save, you know, he's just, it's just innate within him mm-hmm. to want to save this other person. Everybody right. else stands by like, what are you doing? You know, and he has to like mobilize them into action. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if that's, if that parallels your mindset and your philosophy of life. Very much so. And it, it was actually something where I knew I, I needed in the course of the story to have those type of moments. And that one in particular goes back to the, all the years I spent as a lifeguard. I think I was a lifeguard from the time I was 14 to probably 25. I was a certified lifeguard. And yeah, it, it's something that we do as, as a lifeguard and, you know, having that had that type of training and whatnot, you do those sorts of things without necessarily thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a response. You, you The stimulus happens. Happens, you respond in a trained manner. It's not like you're going to go out there flailing and do something bad. But in, in that particular case with Kieran, he sees this accident happen and he knows he has to go. And he just he just reacts, and it's very similar to my my own uh, look at things. I mean, I can remember I've you know witnessed car accidents, and I'm out of the car and going to see if if someone is okay and that sort of thing. It's it's just something that you it's part of who you are. I mean, mm-hmm. Like I said, I was all the way through Boy Scouts. I was an Eagle Scout, um, all the way through my my officers training in the Army. I mean, all those things kind of come back to that, and it's just it's an opportunity to not necessarily be the hero but it's an opportunity to, to try to serve others and be helpful as much as you can and bring your skill set to bear. And in that particular case with that sequence, that's very much how I would look at that. Yeah. And so how does Kentucky fit in with your 
So he, it's a ten, it's actually t- Tennessee, Tennessee. Sorry, Tennessee, yeah. Tennessee. So I was born and raised in Johnson City, Tennessee. Okay, good. I am a Tennessean at heart. And so when Kieran goes home and when he discovers his ancestral home site, that's actually based on our family farm. I have cousins that live there now. It's outside of Jonesboro, Tennessee. And uh, it's that's home. And wow. being able to to go there, and it, it's been fun for them to to get you know have the novel and whatnot, and know that you know where the old Rock Spring House is on the on the grounds. That's where Kieran goes, and it's fun. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was twenty. Let's see, it was probably what twenty fifteen. Yeah, 2015 or so, uh, I was back in Tennessee with my dad, and uh, we drove down to the farm, and I actually went outside. You know, it's, it's kind of cool and misty, but I went outside and took a video and, you know, had that opportunity to to just kind of be there at that spot. And, I mean, I'd been there, you know, millions of times as a kid. Yeah. But after you put it into a book and, you know, you make something of it, it kind of takes on a little bit different significance. So it was pretty cool to be able to do that. Definitely. Now, are any of the characters in your book named after people in your life? No, actually, uh, they're not. <clears throat> so, um, if you took Kieran's, Kieran's last name would actually trace back through my mom's side of, of our family because they were Rourke's, uh, direct from Ireland. And then, of course, my dad's family was more Scotch-Irish. Um, but no, there's no one that is that is actively named after someone. There's bits and pieces of names. So uh, General Crawley, uh, Crawley is the middle name of one of my closest friends and mentors. And so being able to, to pull him in, in a sense, in that, in that respect was a lot of fun. Um, Berkeley Bennett, I'll admit, I actually admitted this to my daughter like four days ago. I'm not, and I'm not joking about this because she wanted to know where did, I, where did I come up with the name Berkeley? And I stole it from a waitress that I had at a, at a restaurant in Utah. <laughs> and I don't, and it was while I was in the process of working on this book and, you know, she comes up and introduces herself as Berkeley. And it was just like this little tuning fork went off in my head. I'm like, I like that name. <laughs> so I stole it. So. <laughs> wow. That's great. So. Now, do you do you gravitate? I mean, I read I read all the different, you know, they're kind of like it was a blur of everything that you've written here. So, military sci-fi, Four Horsemen, that's that's military, military sci-fi. sci-fi. Yes. Protocol, obviously, military sci-fi. Now, I know that um, Kane Riordan is also military sci-fi. It's a much harder sci-fi, though. There's so it, yeah, it's it's definitely hard sci-fi, but it's definitely military. At least yeah. What I, I read. And I would agree. I think you know, mill sci-fi often gets the idea that it's you know just you know big guns and you know big explosions in space. And there's a whole lot more to it with right. you know, the, the interactions of soldiers and leadership and that sort of thing. And then what what Chuck's universe does with the, the Kane Riordan universe is it has those elements, but he's got a lot of intrigue, which I also like to write. He's got a lot of the the hard science, which I'll admit, you know, I'm not the most scientific guy in the world, but there's certain concepts that that are very intriguing, and being able to study them and get them right and put them into the universe is, is something fun to do. So I have gravitated a lot to those things, but I've also tried to do things where I can spread my my chops out a little bit. Yeah, well, writing in in the uh, Eric Flint's universe, that's definitely a different set of. Uh, of cutlery it was involved it was and you know that that story goes back to the the notebook idea you know having a notebook around all the time when i was really starting out and one point i wrote a note in that notebook about what if the coin george washington reputedly threw across the delaware river was a bicentennial quarter and I did nothing with that idea because I knew it was alternate history. And I'd, I'd read some Flint. I'd read some David Weber. I'd read some Harry Turtledove. I'd read uh, Jeff and Michael Shara's work. That's more a little bit more historical fiction. But I, I, I had no clue what I was going to do with this. And so flash forward to 2014, right here at Superstars. I will go to the VIP dinner and I'm sitting at Eric's table. And we have a wonderful conversation all through the night. And he's asking a lot of questions about everyone. And at the end of the, at the, end of the, the night, we're putting on our jackets and we're getting ready to walk back here to the hotel. And I just kind of turned to him and blurted it out. I said, Eric, I've, I have this idea. It's alternate history. I don't know what to do with it. Is it something where I can maybe get some direction from you on how to approach writing a story like this? And of course, you knew Eric as well as I did. He was one of my most cherished friends and mentors. And he, with his voice, what was the idea? <laughs> so I tell him the idea with the, the coin that Washington repeatedly threw and his eyes light up and he goes, let's go to lunch tomorrow. And so <laughs> here I am, new author with, with you know, I'd, I'd finished the, the second manuscript I ever tried to write, which ended up being Sleeper Protocol, which it sold later that year. But here I was now going from this strange scribbled down idea in a notebook to now I'm going to talk with one of the masters of alternate history the next day at lunch about this story. And so that started uh, my mentorship with Eric. And um, over the course of uh, 
the next several years, we worked together on things. And it, it's kind of kind of poignant to talk about the, the story because the week after Superstars in 2014, I nearly died. Uh, I contracted an infection, which actually was a skin-eating bacterial infection that tried to eat my right leg. And so I spent time in the hospital here in Colorado Springs. It, it took me a long time to recover. As part of my recovery, I submitted the novel and ended up it ended up selling, which was fun because uh, the first time I got a contract- so I guess it has perks getting- It did. It, I, almost I, dying. A little, bit of, a little bit of time on your butt. And, <laughs> It was actually something where, you know, I, I'll be completely honest, dealing with the, the survivor's guilt, you know, because I knew from looking at the the data from the Centers for Disease Control that over the course of the last several years prior to that, there'd only been a couple hundred thousand cases of what I had in the United States a year. And the mortality rate was fluctuating between 20 and 30%. So there was a, a 30% chance that I could have died. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when you're, recoverings from something like that, you, you sometimes have those thoughts of why am I still here? What, what about this is, you know, what am I supposed to be doing with this time that I've been given? And just one night I reached over and grabbed the computer and started and got back to work to, to get that manuscript ready and submit it out. So I did, and I got an offer from a small press. And one of the things that Eric used to do at Superstars was he would give a contracting class. And his promise to the group was, if you get a literary contract and it doesn't look right to you and you want a second set of eyes to look at it, send it to me. So I, being newbie author, you know, having met Eric, I send the nice polite email. Hey, Eric, did you really mean that what you said? Uh, And of course, Eric's like, send me the contract. So (laughs) I send him the contract and he basically writes back with about, you know, it's like five pages of information about uh, specific clauses. Don't sign this. Don't sign this. This is what they're looking for here. This one's okay, that sort of thing. And so I ended up turning down that contract. And it taught me enough that the second time I got a contract, I knew it was a good contract, but Eric was out of the country. So I ended up sending it to Kevin J. Anderson, who's also a good friend of yeah. mine, and said, hey, what do you think about this? And so I signed that contract. But I would never have imagined writing alternate history if it hadn't been for Eric's enthusiasm because he loved the idea. And one of the things that he taught me at that very first uh, lunch was actually down here in the hotel sports bar. I can show you the table too if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, He said, alternate history is not about the inciting incident. Yeah, everybody thinks it's you. Know, you drop someone into the the new future and ever or the new or the past, and everything happens at that moment. It's not that. It's not just them coming back to the past. It's the ripples of everything that they touch. So everything that the protagonist or whoever is going to be in, in your in your book, everything that they do, even the clothes that they wear, have an effect because it's it's going to be so new to the time frame and their values, their approaches to things, their language, all that stuff is going to be so different that you have to explore those ripple effects. And so as we went through the construction and then when I wrote The Crossing, that was constantly on my mind. And then Eric as an editor was, uh, you can imagine, yeah. gruff and direct. Yep. And he would and he would be very, very upfront. This does not work or I don't understand what you're doing here. And, and he really kind of uh, reeled me back in a lot because you, you get science fiction brain and everything is possible. And Eric would come back and say, go back a step, you know, go back and and do this a little differently. Because I think that you would see that, you know, just the appearance of shoes with rubber on the soles would, would really make colonial shoemakers wonder what's going on. But I, and I would say, Eric, but there's no colonial shoemakers in the book. He said, that's not the point. What, what do other people see? How do they react to it? And he was right. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of pull there and it becomes, it, it's kind of fun for the reader to, to see, oh, what would George Washington say about running into a group of army ROTC cadets, you know, from 2008 with their, uh, high speed, uh, digital camouflage and their, their battle helmets and all that fun stuff. What would it be like for him? And so it was fun to be able to do that. And Eric was a, a tremendous mentor and being able to, to kind of have that experience with him was life-changing. That's amazing. That's a great story there, too. Now, you are working in publishing now, so I'm assuming that's a a, a boon to your existence. I've enjoyed it. You know, like you starting at the very beginning, not ever thinking I was going to be a writer. I would never have imagined being here. You know, and I look at where I've come in the last decade or so. It's mm-hmm. been really phenomenal. And... um I, I never would have expected, and I love doing what I do. I love being able to, to tell stories, and writing is a lot of fun, but I've, I've also become a teacher, and so I've been working. I've been teaching here at Superstar since 2016. Uh, I think for the last four years, I've taught one of the craft day portions on story structure. It's something that I've, I've, I've grown to love and understand, and being able to share that type of stuff with upcoming writers is huge because it's an opportunity not just to give back, mm-hmm. but to help them sh- sort of learn some of the things that I learned in a, on a much faster timeline. 
know, for, for me, writing a, a first novel, the, the first one I ever tried to write ended up becoming Runs in the Family, and it was published after my first book was published. But that book took me 18 months to write, and it was a mess. It was a total mess <laughs> because I thought I knew what a book needed to be. And so in the process of getting ready to write Sleeper Protocol, I decided that I wanted to outline. And I tell this story when I teach the class, but I, I was going to have foot surgery, so I was going to be on my butt for about six weeks. And so I wanted to outline this book. I wanted to do it differently. So I pull out my laptop and I change Microsoft Word over to outline mode because I think I'm really cool. And I just sat there watching the cursor for like two minutes because I didn't know what to do next. But I was in outline mode. I didn't know what to do. And so I reached out to uh, another mentor and just kind of asked the question, this is what I want to do. How do I do this? And over the course of about six weeks, I got these daily emails and reading assignments and all these different things that helped me put that together so that when it was time to write Sleeper Protocol, it didn't take me 18 months. It took me about eight weeks. It was, you know, roughly seven and a half weeks and it just, it flew out of my head and it ended up doing very well. So absolutely, if I can save somebody else all that trouble and consternation that I had, that's what I like to do. That's excellent. Now, one thing that really struck me with and Obviously, PW got it as well, an emotionally powerful debut. So how do you think, like, you got two datums here. One is a debut novel, and two, emotion, especially when you get into science fiction. Right. You know, so what secret sauce were you drinking that got, <laughs> got you able to, like, put that much emotion? And Because they're real people. You really... Maybe it's because they're, he's un, unraveling, he's experiencing life as he's starting to do it and right. really getting the shoes. But whatever it is, you do really see that emotion and really are able to, to connect with that. So how do you do that? I think there's a couple of ways. Um, the first thing that you do with, with a character is you have to give them something to do, right? Mm-hmm. And the more clear you can make their goals, the more, the more that's going to help them. Because then, you know, all of us have goals. And as we're going through our daily life, we may or may not reach our goal. And our emotional reactions to reaching the goal or not reaching the goal have to be authentic. So if I re- if I have this goal and I don't get there, what's what is my what's my response? And so if you make those those type of decisions, especially, and I, I love having characters fail to get what they want all the time because you can really explore that authenticity. You can explore how how deep their emotions go. Uh, you can see how what their tenacity is like and how they can potentially bounce back from the, the setback that they've had. Because we've all had setbacks. Right. Yeah. I think that one thing that you know, a lot of people really enjoy are this, the protagonists that never seem to lose or never seem to make bad decisions. And that's popcorn. That's not that's not, that's life. not life. And you know, I think by being able to to bring that it, that little bit of life and life experience to it, where the character doesn't get what they want and they have a sad reaction or an angry reaction, and the the audience is going to have that reaction. Action too. Uh, part of that comes back to another piece, which is thinking about something in cinema they call the mirror effect, which means if I was standing behind the screen and I'm showing a comedy to you, when the funny the funny parts happen, the jokes happen, I want to see you through the screen laughing at what you're seeing. Likewise, if you're if something sad is happening on the screen, I want the audience to be sad. So if you have those type of things. You have the you have the opportunity to craft the story to hopefully generate that reaction, right? And I think that that type of reaction is very critical from an emotional resonance perspective. And when you tell resonant stories, and not just with your protagonist, you can do things with other side characters. Um, I tell a story in one of the classes I teach on emotional resonance, but I made my dad not talk to me for a week because I, I killed a secondary character who had these goals that were seemingly impossible to get to, but she was doing all of these things. And military sci-fi, of course, you know, wars happen and things happen and people die. But in this particular case, it was very striking to him because it was something he wasn't expecting. And it was something that he had started to feel so much for this particular, she's an alien. He was starting to feel so much for her, especially in the overall universe universe where her species is reviled. It was so much fun to be able to do that. And I did it again to him with another story in in Chuck Gannon's universe. I was going to say, that sounds like a Chuck Gannon type of a universe thing. (laughs) I did it again with Chuck. So, uh, so yeah. And 
Yeah, dad, dad was was well, very very keen on not speaking to me for about a week. <laughs> but those types of things, you know, it, it's that authenticity. It's what you know. We we always think about. I'm going to construct a story in my head, and there's a lot more to it than that. You can you can build a story, but where that connection is to your reader is going to be important. And I think that's where we want to see ourselves in our heroes. We want to see ourselves in the, the situation. How would we respond in that situation? And if we ourselves identify more with you know a normal person versus like a Jack Reed or an Alex Cross type of character, we see those things happening. We're like, yeah, I love this. And now we're hooked in and we become part of the story. And that, that's, I think, where Sleeper Protocol and the entire Protocol War series really captures that is because this is a guy who's basically making things up as he goes and trying to figure out all these different things that are happening in this far future and bring back to life the idea that's in his head that might change the, the course of the universe. It's fun. Yeah. So now on writing your action sequences. I know there's various tricks and, and things that can be done to, mm-hmm. you know, to cause your, your reader to hyperventilate versus <laughs> be able just to chill for a bit and right. let the pulse rate go down and then back up again. Um, any particular things you can say about that what an aspiring author can actually use that would be able to help? Sure. I think when you're writing action sequences, and I'll focus the first one on if you're doing like big things like any type of battle sequence, like big spaceship battles, or yeah. what I tried to specialize in doing was ground, for, ground force work because I was uh, an armor officer, so I dealt with tanks in the army uh, for the first part of my career. And what I end up doing with that is I will literally take my whiteboard or an easel with uh, paper on it, and I will draw out what the battlefield looks like. And I'll put I'll put the mountains or the terrain, and I'll put the units on there, and then I will figure out step by step where things need to happen. So if one vehicle needs to go this way, I'll just kind of map it out with my head, and then I have that piece of paper or the whiteboard that's in front of my desk at home, and I'm looking at that while I'm writing. And I recognize, okay, I, you can kind of, after a while, it, it, it sounds kind of funky, but after a while, you actually can kind of feel like you're starting to see things move according to what you're thinking in your head because oh, totally makes sense. You, you have a map and you're able to, to, to focus that. On the flip side of that, if you do anything that's like a, a fight scene, like it's it's hand-to-hand combat or like a small infantry tactics moving, you know, building to building or something like that, it's the same kind of approach. But then what you're kind of doing, at least for me, is I'm trying to put myself in that that frame of mind, right? Where, if okay, I'm, I'm up against this building now. And rather than run blindly out to the next building or whatever, I'm going to try to peek around the corner, you know, those types of little nuances, because that's what people like to like to see. It's not, again, I'm just going to run between building to building. Well, you might get shot. You know, is, is, the, is it clear that way? Do I have anything that's going to be bringing, you know, fire towards my, my path or whatnot? So being able to just kind of take those things one step at a time and and think those through. Uh, I have literally stood up in my office and acted out fight scenes. You know, with, you know, you're swinging a, a right fist at someone. What what does that do to your body? Does it take you off balance? Do you twist your upper body in a certain way? Does that provide a leverage point for the enemy? That sort of thing. So, it's just it's it's taking your time and getting the details right. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite Amazon reviews is the only thing it says on on the bo- on the book is I appreciate that he got the call for artillery fire process correct. Because people, again, people like that stuff. And as a lieutenant, I was trained on how to call for artillery fire. And if Hall is a certain radio sequence bit, and I just put that into the book because that's how I learned it. And someone reading the book liked the book enough and left only that as a review because I was right, which was fun. And conversely, if you did it wrong... Oh, you never hear the end of it. Exactly. <laughs> you never hear the end of it. You know, and it, it's 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 something that you know, and you, some things you you might be it might be something that is an error in editing. You know, we have books all the time across all of publishing that go to print with you know a typographical error or whatnot. Uh, those things happen, and uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's it's your job to get it right because if you don't, you're never going to hear the end of it. Yeah, there was um, one story of of. Um, over in Harbor that he wrote about the Coast Guard. It turned out it was one of my favorite, one of his, of his military fiction stories. He couldn't sell it for the life of him. And because he was doing what he thought the Coast Guard was. And he said, okay, that's it. So he went to a Coast Guard base, went on one of the patrol boats, um, spoke to not the officers, but to the actual, you know, the people that actually did the work right. and found out what it really was, changed his story, and it sold right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just amazing. It's 
if you don't do the homework on it, and that was the moral of the story, and it's in one of his essays, it just doesn't, you know, search for resources, what that article was. Authenticity is huge. And I think that's something when, when I work with younger and newer writers, it's always, all right, you have a community around you of, of other writers, especially something like here at Superstars. You know, this afternoon I'm going to teach mentorship. And one of the things that I will tell the class is all around you right now are experts. They may not be experts in writing, but all of them have something that they do in their their daily life. Uh, a couple of days ago at the the working lunch on craft day, a uh, young lady sat at my table who's a truck driver. And I would, looking at her, I would never have thought she drove trucks across the country. But it was fascinating to think now, if I ever have something like that come up, I know exactly her name and I can send her an email and say, hey, can you help me through with this? I, I just had this happen with the book that I was writing and I wanted to be very specific about a particular injury. And so I... I got in touch with a friend of mine who was a neuroscientist and said, what would this sound like? If you were, if you were telling the, the loved ones of this character what had happened, how would you say this? And he wrote me back and said, this is exactly what I would, what I would talk about. And then he said, smith it the way that you, think, that you think it would be for your character to say. And so I did, and I sent it back to him and said, what do you think? And he was like, that's, that's spot on. That's really good. So we're surrounded by experts. And that means if you, if you need something, there's a lot of folks that you can call. And uh, you know, the internet, of course, is great. Uh, there's so many different uh, research capabilities there and the search engine stuff that you can find just about anything anymore. But if you have the opportunity to ask someone who's themselves been in that place and done those types of things, that comes back to that authenticity we were talking about a second ago. It really, really helps. Yeah. It makes sense, too, more what you're saying there, which is the value of building your, in the case of superstars, your tribe, but mm-hmm. you know, your community is, because I can search on Google and I can find any answer in 360 degree radius, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the same question. Exactly so. Right. Um, it seems more appropriate or more of a safer approach to talk to that trucker than to just Google trucking. Yeah, how do you drive a truck versus what is it like to actually be in that thing for however many hours per day? It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So now on um, publishing, you've got you've you've worked with um, you've got two publishing houses, right? That you've yes. You've got um, you've gone to Bain now, so you've got Tony there. That's got, and then you've got Chris Kennedy Publishing. Yes. So, how did the, your tradition, traditional, independent self, how does that work for you? So, I, I'm a hybrid author. I've done a couple of things purely myself, just mainly short stories and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of that was very early on learning the process. You know, the, if you want to understand certain aspects of, of publishing, just like any other job, you kind of kind of do them yourself. Yeah. And so I, I put together a little ebook with a couple of short stories, and I got the cover art, and I did the cover design, and you know, it's still out there on Amazon. But over time, you, with the things that you learn, then you're able to to take that and do other things, so that you have an you have an idea of cover design, you have an idea of of the the art direction that you want to go for with a novel. You start looking at things like typography. You know, how does how does the book lay out in a book? Is is there room for my thumbs on the physical book? Is the text big enough? Those, th- those types of things. Um, and by doing a little bit of it myself, I was able to learn an awful lot about that so that as I got into the more traditional type of relationships and you're working with a publishing house, you, you already have a pretty good idea from the different things you learn as a new writer about how to handle editing and how to handle things like galley proofs and that sort of thing. But now you have the opportunity after you've done it yourself and then you see it for real from somebody else, there's that little kick in your head that says, oh, now I, I get what I did here wrong. And so then you're able to, to, to continue building your, your your knowledge base up and, and move forward. And I think it's, you know, we always talk about in traditional publishing uh, mindsets that you turn in your manuscript and you have no control over anything. And you might get uh, a, a piece of paper with, you know, what are your ideas for, what do you think you want on the cover, right? That, that type of thing. And I've been fortunate enough in my career with what I've learned. And you know, I've, I've been a comic book nut my entire life. So having an idea of, of art and whatnot has is, is always been something that's been fascinating to me. And with like all of my books in the Four Horsemen universe, I designed the initial cover. I just sketched out what I wanted and sent it to Chris. And he sent it to the artist and the artist made it happen. Uh, with the, the crossing with Bane, you know, there I'm thinking, you know, I'm 
not going to have anything to do with this book. And I got the the email and said, you know, we're going to put you in contact with the artist and tell him what you're kind of thinking. And so the artist was Kieran Yoner. And I sent Kieran an email and said, you know, this cover and the cover of The Crossing is exactly what I wanted. It's essentially a, a repainting of Washington Crossing the Delaware by Lutz, you know, the very famous painting, but changing the people in the boat to modern day soldiers in, in their, you know, their uh, army combat uniforms and their helmets and whatnot. And he loved the idea and ran with it. And the publisher looked at it and said, yeah, we love it. And it's, it's a fantastic thing. But I wouldn't have been there if I hadn't done some of that stuff myself and learned very early on what I needed to do. Right. Um, and working with Eric Flint, we talked a lot about fonts and you know what, are, what you're looking for from readability and those types of things. So there's, there's so many things that you, that you can learn by doing. And you have all the, the opportunity in the world. And in some cases, it's kind of fair game. You, you can go create an ebook now. There's programs that do that for you. And you can do it very fast. I think we took a Word file to a finished ebook in like seven minutes not long ago. It doesn't take very long. So you can you have those capabilities. So experiment a little bit. Play around with it and see what, what you can do. And I think that helps a lot. That's great. So um, you've got, you had the small, you had the, the contracts now with a smaller publisher. It was Indie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then... You got you bought the rights back, or they were just they they retired and you and you got them back. So uh, yeah, with what I had with the, the first two books of the Protocol War, uh, I actually asked for a reversion of rights after a period of time it had passed because uh, it was something that I, I wanted to do. I wanted uh-huh. to do it a little bit differently, and it was purely a business decision. It was no no ill will between the publisher or I. It was just something where I noticed that the sales on the second book didn't quite get where they needed to be with the first, and I thought it was possibly something that might be we needed to rebrand or we need to rethink the pricing and the marketing strategies. And it was something where I just, I felt like that was going to be something I could do better someplace else. And so when I reached that point in the reversion uh, calendar, if you will, I asked for the rights back and they, they granted them back. And so I republished uh, the protocol war back through Chris Kennedy publishing. And then obviously it did much better there. It has done much better. Yes. It's doing well. So on, um, so I think this is an important thing because I haven't talked about it a whole lot. I've had a few different lawyers on talking about contracts and whatnot but as well you were going to be studying to become a lawyer so i'm very 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 thankful i didn't but that's (laughs) that's another thing that that totally doesn't that takes a little bit of air out of the direction i'm taking it (laughs) but anyway for someone i think it's really important that um people will get so desperate writers get so desperate to get their their book published Mm -hmm. that they'll They'll sign with the devil if they need to. Oh, yeah. You know, so any cautionary tale you can please provide about that. So the very first contract I got on Sleeper Protocol, um, one of the first things, and it was an, it was one of those very long contracts on legal paper. It was like seven or eight pages long with 70 or 100 uh, different clauses. Uh, I think that right on the very front, you know, just a couple of clauses in was we we want your work and we, we claim the rights to your work for the, the, wor- the uh, entire life of copyright which is my death plus 70 years. That's a massive red flag because basically what I'm doing at that point is I'm signing over the rights and everything to this work forever, potentially. Right. And that's one of the, the biggest red flags that you'll find, uh, except if you're writing like a work for hire. So let's say that a video game company comes in and asks you to write a short story in their your, their universe or something along those lines. That's a work for hire. So most likely you're going to write that, you're going to cash the check, and but you have no that's rights it. to that. Yeah, it's um, over. You know, Kindle had a program several years ago called uh, Kindle Worlds, which was essentially licensed fan fiction. And I think they had 20 or 25 different universes that you could write in. And I wrote in a couple of those universes with the full understanding that, yeah, I'm going to write this story and it's, but it's going to belong to them. But I'm going to be, I'm going to have the opportunity to get make some royalties off of that, which I did, which was which was fun. But as far as the rights to those stories, I'll, I'll, those will never see print again because Kindle World has gone away, and I I'm under an agreement where I cannot publish those stories. So understanding life of copyright uh, for uh, a work versus work for hire, I think is a big one. Um, Understanding rights, uh, what the rights are to your book. You know, most people think, well, my book is print book rights, ebook rights, and maybe audio book rights. Well, you have book clubs, you have unabridged version, you have abridged and unabridged versions. You have 
large print editions. You have so many different things where you start thinking about them being pieces of the pie. You have all kinds of pieces of the pie, even down to film, television, any type of other rights. Uh, so understanding that each one of those is is a piece of your pie, if you will. Yeah, the, the publisher might ask for those you know, typical print, ebook, and audio rights, but you have a whole lot of other stuff in your in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. And if something where if you said, well, I wanted to, you know, I've had an, a number of people that said, why don't you do a, a large print book? There's nothing stopping me from doing a large print edition of that book because the publisher might have only taken those those particular rights for what they normally do. And it's also important with those rights if you have a publisher that says, well, we want your audiobook rights, but you look at their catalog and the other authors that they've published and they've never done an audiobook, that's a problem because now I'm giving them rights to something that they may not even do. Why would I go through and do that? So it's understanding that type of thing. I think those are the, the two main things I would pop off and say I would want to, to teach other people about because you can kind of get things uh, really screwed up really quickly. Yeah, I think that's, it's underplayed, but it's so important that you will have unscrupulous people in publishing, yeah. not the big houses, but then chances are you're never going to see the light of day with the big house. But the smaller ones, um, you know, obviously not Chris Kennedy, mm-hmm. not um, Tony Weisskopf with Bain, and definitely not New York's. Um, but you'll find that because they'll try to do something that can make a quick buck. You know, if they can get you like, okay, if you're dumb enough to sign it, then... That's your fault. And, and there's a lot of resources that are out there for writers. As, as you're up and coming, there's uh, things like uh, it was uh, Writer Beware. And uh, I think there was another one. I don't know if it's still existing, but Predators and Editors. And these these different online kind of clearinghouse sites where you can actually go in and say, all right, well, I got this, this publishing contract from this company. And I can literally go into those websites and look for information on that company. And very quickly, you can see what's reputable and what's not. And then at, if you know, that kind of passes that first smell test, if you will, that's where you have that community of authors to reach out to. Because chances are, either if it's a reputable press, people will have heard of it and are very quick to, write, to recommend it. Or if it's not something they've heard of, you can approach that with a little bit more trepidation. And, it, and should. And, and, make, and make sure that you're making the right decision. Yeah. Okay, so now on um – so you're heavily, I mean, you've done a little bit of this alternate, uh, alternate history, but you've mostly stick with, with uh, military fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself going in any other directions? Uh, so I've actually had the opportunity. I did a modern day thriller with Nick Thacker, who's a, a very, a very successful independent author. Uh, he had a series where uh, we were just were having a beer here in Colorado Springs and talking about it. And <laughs> he was like, well, you ought to write something with me. So we actually did a, a little modern day thriller with one of his characters. And that was a lot of fun. I'd like to, to, to maybe play around with that. Um, my book, Super Sync, it's science fiction, but it's not military. It's it's oh. very much a, an Elmore Leonard-style mystery in space. Uh, Elmore Leonard was one of my literary heroes. Uh, I really wanted to have the opportunity to meet him once I started selling books and going to, to conventions and whatnot. Uh, of course, he passed away several years ago. But um, his type of stories where he literally drops you in the middle of a situation and then you have to figure out who's worth rooting for really kind of was something that, it's something that speaks to me. I love, I love the different uh, works that he had. All whatever 70, 80 novels that yeah. he did, uh, all the different films and and such that have been made out of his uh, out of his ideas, uh, because it, Florida Keys in space. Oh well, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, so let's take a segue. So my favorite of the movies is Jackie Brown, which was done by Quentin Tarantino. And yeah. when you when you start watching that movie, your first instinct is, what in the world is going on here? I kind of get an idea of what's happening, but then you start to see as as, as Leonard and of course how the way that Tarantino does it in the movie and peels back the onions of the uh, the layers of the onion, if you will, you you now understand who you should be rooting for, but you also see the danger to them and how what all this is going to play out. So when he passed away, I decided I wanted to write an homage, and because I was doing science fiction, I just set this in space, and so it's a couple of different rival salvage crews going after a very large, very fictional uh, spy satellite from the 1970s, and. All kinds of different things happen and ensue because each of them are trying to uh, con the other one, and it was very much that that type of, of Leonard style story, which I, I loved. Um, so, being able to, to expand my chops and, and do different things, I'm, I'm all about. I have the opportunity now; it's great. Well, that's awesome. So we've touched upon this a little bit, but just to hit it again, like because uh, people actually talk about being a pantser versus a uh, plotter, and you said you you outline stuff, so. 
Have you ever been a pantser or you? I actually have, and I still do. So um, when I'm working with longer works, you know, novels and whatnot, I always have an outline. Right. Um, when I was doing the outline for sleeper protocol, it's much more longer and involved than the current outlines that I do, because you start to learn different things and you start to become more familiar with story structure where I might write a paragraph on sleeper protocol about what I'm going to do in a couple of chapters. I can do that with a couple of sentences now or a couple of little bullet points. Right. Um, but when I'm writing short fiction, uh, if I'm asked to do a short story for an anthology or, or something along those lines, most of the time it's pantsing. Uh, I'll get an idea of the theme of the anthology or what they're looking for, and then I'll just kind of see what comes out and kind of kind of let that go. And then typically what will happen is I might write a couple thousand words, mm-hmm. and then I normally will stop and go, okay – this is pretty good. I think I've got an idea of what the world and everything is. Now, maybe I need to go back in and just give myself a couple of beats for a story, to like taking the traditional seven-point story structure, for example, using that one, and just distill my story down to seven points. Then look at that couple thousand words that I've written. Where am I at? Is, you know, this section, does that count for the hook or whatnot? And then I can go back and say, okay, apply what I've written to the story and then figure out what needs to happen next. And then it's a pretty easy thing to do. So I think you'd call me a plotzer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I think that I, there's no, and I think it's important to, to make sure people understand there's no wrong answer because uh, right. I, I feel like we have an innate understanding of story structure. It's been passed down to us for thousands of years, and it's the reason why when you watch a television show or a movie that you've never seen before, you start to get an inkling of what's going to happen next. It's because you understand story, and I mm-hmm. think that's been passed down to us over the years that we recognize that in a very, very, very clear way, and. It's something that we all do. The difference between plotting and pantsing, I liken it to a map, right? And if I wanted to drive from here in Colorado Springs to Cheyenne, Wyoming, the fastest way for me to get there is to follow the interstate. That's the outline. But if I wanted to, I could take a detour up in Denver and go up into Rocky Mountain National Park and take the scenic view. But I'd still have the capability from the top of Rocky Mountain National Park to come back down and get back to the interstate and get to Cheyenne. So you have the capability of what you're doing as a pantser as long as you know where you're going. And I think that most people that start pantsing, once they have an idea of what the end of the story is, they know how to get there. And then their ability to shorten that out uh, and get to the point where they're distilling the story down to what it needs to be really helps. So I I don't think there's a wrong answer with plotting and pantsing. Sure. Have you ever written a story and didn't discover the ending until the end? Um, there's actually been a couple. So the, the the one I was telling you about earlier with with my dad, right? When my dad yeah. would speak to me for a week, I had a different ending in mind for that book. And I, that particular chapter is about four chapters from the end of the book. And I, writing that story that night, I had an idea. My plan is there. You know, I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. And I just, I froze. I'm, I'm literally, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night. My family's in bed. I'm on the couch. I'm writing. And I froze. And my brain, that subconscious part of my brain is going, you got to do something else because I had originally intended for, you know, a certain course of events to happen. And I recognized at that point, if I, if I changed the character who was going to have to die to teach everyone the lesson that needed to be taught, it didn't need to be the one I was thinking of. It needed to be her. And so the first thing I do is (laughs) no, there's no way. (laughs) And the second thing I thought was, all right, let's, let's write it. So I, you know, Got into the document, started writing the story, and I, I tell the story. I'm writing and I'm I'm crying because I it's, I recognize what's happening, and because of my emotional reaction, I'm starting to recognize my subconscious was right about this. But because I'm a writer and I second guess myself a lot, I decided after I went to bed, laid in bed for a little bit, thinking that's got to be the worst thing I've ever written. Uh, I decided that I'd go the next morning to, to a local Starbucks and, and edit the scene. And I'm sitting at Starbucks the next morning crying. <laughs> so I recognized at that point what I had, what my subconscious had pulled out and said, this is what you need to do was really the right answer. And where I think outlining and plotting get their bad name is there's a lot of folks out there that tell you that once you write an outline, it is written in concrete. You cannot do anything with it. And I completely disagree with that. Right. I, th- I think that uh, every once in a while, you're going. You, that's going to work for 80%, 90% of what you do. But every once in a while, you're going you're gonna to have that experience like I had where your subconscious is going to say, hey, time out. Something's not right here. And then you're going to be able to figure out something a little bit more powerful or the, the ending that's going to be more emotionally resonant to the story, which really helped. So yeah, those, those, times, those things do happen. Wow. That's, that's, this is really cool because this is the kind of stuff that people – want to hear about like how did this work how did he deal with that is it is it is it legit yeah you know so absolutely now at 
before we started this podcast, I asked you if you if you'd read any of the fiction works by Owen Hubbard, and you said you'd read Battlefield Earth. I had. Um, now, did you read it when it first came out, or was this? So I probably read. See, I'm think, trying to think. I read Battlefield Earth when I was in college, because uh, at the same time while I was in, in college, we were given a couple of different books to read. One being Joe Haldeman's Forever War, mm-hmm. another one being Starship Troopers by Heinlein, yeah. and Battlefield Earth was one that we also circulated around the, the group of, of cadets that we had. And I just remember, you know, looking at the, those three books. Uh, of course, I always told people that the Forever War talks it talks about what it's like to come home from war. Uh, Starship Troopers is a lot about how to, to how to go to war, and I thought Battlefield Earth was one of those things where it's how to keep your worldview big, you know, yeah. because uh, it's one of the seminal works of, of science fiction, and it was something that for me, it, you you have these tendencies with these big wide sweeping stories where you get sucked into particular subplots and you gravitate towards one subplot. I didn't feel that with Battlefield Earth. It's the, the constant big picture. So you're constantly getting an idea of what's happening in the overall storyline from every point of view. It's so it's so cool in that respect because it, it really paints a different picture of how to, to write science fiction. Yeah, and it's specifically here that we're in Colorado Springs. This is where the story began. Yeah. It's right by here. You know, you've got with um, uh, Air Force Academy, mm-hmm. you know, and the cadets there were... For him, when he picked up that, you know, the the badge there, and he was like, he's he's the last member of the United States Air Force, and for him that was so important, so significant. Yeah. And um, one thing about about Owen Hubbard as as an author, he was really, first of all, he was very pro, you know, the services, the armed services, and not so much pro the brass as he was, you know, the guy on the ground that had to do right. the fighting. And then also the, you know, the the NCOs mm-hmm. and the people there and lieutenants, you know, sure. the other ones on the ground having to deal with 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 battle. Yeah. And um but in here just how he just, you know, take back the skies, you know, was his with Johnny's yeah. model and the whole thing there. But it's just interesting the whole this whole thing I look at Pike's Peak, which in the book was High Peak, mm-hmm. and finding then the um, the entrance to the um, the hidden base right. in that whole thing there. It was just it's really interesting here coming back here. And um, <laughs> in fact, I've got a presentation that um, that Dave Chesson's doing tomorrow. That we're going to try to get Pike Peak in the background right. um, about that about the book because it's the 40th anniversary for yeah. for Battlefield Earth. Yeah, that's true. It really is. Wow. Yeah. So it's just I've talked to several authors who who said that's how they learned pacing. Like Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson said, that's what taught me how to, how to handle pacing yep. in, a, in an action sequence type thing. And Kevin said he got exhausted because he was just like hyperventilating because some of the action scenes were so intense. Yep. Like I said at the beginning, it's like, this, how do you write action versus, you know, so you can slow down a little bit and catch your breath and then pick it up again. Yeah, I think one of the other things with that too was every time you switch a scene or a chapter, you're going to something that's equally important. You're, you're not stepping back in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And that's something that I think translates very well to what we're trying to do with modern science fiction is that you don't have that where you go three or four or chapters and then you have backstory or you've you've stepped back to another another planet or another locale that has very little to do with the current situation. Even though you want it to have something to do with it down in the end, it, you're, you're moving backwards. And I think that you know, Battlefield Earth is one of those books where, again, you start with the big view and you constantly have the big view. There's there's always – everything that's brought in throughout across the book is pointing towards the ending all at the same time. It's all yeah. at the same pace. I completely agree. Yeah. And one last comment on it is, which I really think is cool. I don't know which library it is that he discovered when he – because he actually learned at a library, and when he wanted to go back and learn about economics, he went back to the library to read books on economics when they had to get into dealing with right. the aliens, you know, and the um, the, the bankers, the and the gray coats that. Well, if, if it's that sharks, if it's Colorado Springs. I can't help but think it's that building that's right over there. That's the Carnegie Library. Wow, that so, be, that would be awesome because it was be fun. Yeah, but he's. But he actually put in there like his books. You know, you learn from books, and it was. You know, it's important that you have to learn and understand things to yeah. be able to tackle. And it's not just you just don't wing it. You have to actually study and learn to make it go. Which, yeah. which you've talked a lot about too already in this in this interview. Yeah, authenticity makes the makes it go. It really does. Absolutely. So, um, unfortunately, 
<laughs> our hour. Yeah, I know it's, it's passed very quickly. So and it's amazing. Which you know, this has been so much fun, you know. And uh, so for someone to who isn't familiar with your writings, what would you recommend um, as the first work to to or if you like this kind of book, you read this. If you like this kind of book, you read that. But Sure. So I think for my science fiction sleeper protocol is a very good entry point. I second um, that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, of course, the alternate history being the crossing. Uh, that's that's a good. Uh, that's the entry point there. Uh, on the military science fiction side, uh, I think you could probably be safe to go with the Peacemaker book. There's, Peacemaker is the first of those books. Yep. Uh, there's now I think. 15 of them. <laughs> so uh, it's been a lot of fun to, to write those. So uh, Sleeper Protocol, Peacemaker, and The Crossing. Great. And how do they find you on social media or anywhere? I'm on kevineikenberry.com is my website. Uh, Can you spell that? It's uh, Ke- Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, Eikenberry, I-K-E-N-B-E-R-R-Y.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So I- I'm out there. Just come find me. Good. And you're all over on, on Amazon. Yes. And you can find you on Bain and... Yes. Amazon, Bain, uh, pretty much anywhere. I bet Barnes & Noble, you can find my name there. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere. That's way cool. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction and fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Kevin. No problem. Thank you, John.